You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Charles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is uh, David Leach, ITK principal. David, I trust you are well. Charles, I am well. I trust all our listeners are well and uh, enjoy talking about electricity and energy. And uh, I guess the, we've got a great guest this week, haven't we? Look, we do. Look, one of the big things we hear about the transition to the grid is um, batteries, big, small, and um, even mobile, coming to think of it, um, with the uh, things today is World EV Day. I suppose we should make a passing mention of of that. Um, But one of the big questions is, well, who's going to roll out those batteries? Are they going to be households? Are they going to be generation companies and retailers? Or are they going to be networks or all of the above? And um, if so, who should get to own them and who should get to operate them? Um, One of the most interesting um, proposals that has come up of late is a proposal by United Energy based in Victoria to put 40 community scale batteries, um, not just put them around the grid, but hang them from power poles. And uh, David and I talked earlier to Greg Hannon, who's the head of network strategy and non-network solutions with United Energy as well as City Power and PowerCore, their um, related companies. Greg Hannon, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Oh, thanks, Giles. Great to be with you and David today. And I'm a fan of the the show um, and the podcast. So, yeah, great to be with you. Oh, well, thanks for those kind words. Look, we've heard a lot about different battery storage developments and even community batteries, and a lot of them seem to be sort of parked at the end of the street or in some sort of little box somewhere. You guys have come up with a completely different idea. Hang them off power poles. Explain to me why you can, why you're doing that. Yeah, thanks, John. So if you would have seen a few weeks ago, we announced the, the rollout of 40 pole top batteries in our United Energy Network, which is in the southeast and inner east of Melbourne. And uh, yeah, we're rolling out 40 batteries over the next 18 months. And the reason we're doing it is because um, we've been funded uh, to do this trial to demonstrate how the batteries can help us manage peak demand on the network. And because the batteries are fairly small, they're 30 kilowatts to our batteries, um, we can put them on poles. And that gives us flexibility to locate them um, close to where the, the constraints are. And in addition to giving us the flexibility to manage peak demand, they can also be shared with a retailer uh, who can trade them for arbitrage and FCAS, and that helps support the business case. And, you know, we generously receive funding from Arena as well for the trial. So that's that's the summary of it. I'm I'm just wondering, actually, how you describe them as quite small. I've got a couple of little batteries in the garage, and they're really small, uh, and they're still pretty heavy. I'm just wondering, how much does a 30-kilowatt battery way and how's it going to be sitting on top of that pole yeah so we've when i call i refer to them as being small relative you know all your listeners would be aware of the really big batteries but yeah they're 30 kilowatts and they can be supported by the poles i think they weigh just under uh 2000 kilograms similar to other you know pole top transformers out there and uh they're about one meter by two meters so 
you know, in the scale of batteries, they're, they're bigger than your home battery, but it's yeah, smaller than the, uh, yeah. the really big batteries that are out there on that transition network. So describe the sort of poles that they're going to be sitting on. Um, because they're not, they're not, they're not like this telegraph pole, which I can see right at the front of my place. I can't imagine a two-ton battery sitting on top of that, but I may, I may be wrong. I'm not a physics major or anything like that. No, they're just, they're just, uh, they'll be just on the standard poles that you see, you know, down your street. And uh, if you if you look closely, you'll you'll be able to see a number of um, pole top transformers. So they'll be similar to that. And uh, as I said, the be- okay. the beauty of it is, you know, because we can put the batteries on the network close to the constraints and by having the batteries close to uh, some of those load constraints, we can, we, can de- we can access and deliver more benefits than, say, larger batteries, which are at higher voltages on the system. So let's, yeah. let's talk about okay. those benefits a little bit, uh, Greg, because uh, this gets us into the prime area of who gets all the benefits from batteries. Uh, you know, there's, as you mentioned, the network benefit, there's the FCAS benefit, uh, there's the savings that consumers may or may not get off their bills. Uh, and in this case, simply energy is, is going to, uh, uh, I think, you, compulsorily, are they, all the batteries are going to go into their virtual power plant. Is, is, is that right? Yeah, so the way, the way it works, David, is that we're taking advantage of what's called value stacking. So we want to leverage as many benefit streams to support the business case. And so when we were designing the program, we went to several retailers and, and sought, you know, those who wanted to be involved. Um, Simply Energy won out. And the way it will work is that um, the batteries are primarily, primarily there, um, you know, to manage, you know, peak demand. And that's, you know, the days in summer when it's really hot, all the air conditioners are running. Um, and so we'll have access to the batteries at those times. And that's only a handful of days, let's face it. But other times, um, yeah, we've signed an agreement with Simply, um, and they pay us a, a lease payment, and they get access to trade the battery in the market. So it's an example of an innovative um, use of the battery between a network and a retailer. And and uh, I mean, so I um, I'm not sure how the lease arrangement works, but would you have like reserves so many uh, hours or something like that per year where 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 you can use the battery at your discretion or so, or something like that? Yeah, so there's a protocol. So ultimately, you need to. So when we need it for the um, network peak demand days, uh, we'd have it. But for all the other times, yeah, simply would 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 have it. And and that means we just need to. You know, tell them um, our needs in advance, which we'll do. Um, yeah, because uh, I mean, that, uh, I imagine that's the time they will also want it in, in ideally. But never mind that. Now, um, generally speaking, when I was looking at some numbers today, network utilization, as measured by substation throughput, is relatively low across the whole of uh, the national electricity network. But in United Energy, it's relatively high. But um, um, I guess the question I'm asking is, will you actually avoid any network expenditure as a result of putting these in? So the answer to that is yes. So, yeah, we designed the program to target um, upgrades that we would have had to make otherwise. And as a network business, you know, we are obliged to pursue the least cost solution when we make investments. And that's why we always look at a range of options, demand management, could be load shifting, could be batteries like this, um, or it could be, uh, you know, demand management. So without um, putting the batteries in, we would have to go and upgrade the sites, those 40 sites, and make effectively traditional network investment. Um, And with the extra payment that we receive from Simply, 
and the uh, grants that we've received from Marina, it, it, it stacked up as the least cost option. So that's why we're doing it. I'll hand back to Giles in a second, but uh, the way you've described it, and, and I may have uh, got the wrong end of the sticky, it wouldn't be the first time, or the wrong end of the pole perhaps, um, uh, uh, um, the actual households in the area don't have any direct involvement per se? Well, they don't have the direct involvement, but the beauty of it is that um, we're, we're basically managing the network, which we do for customers every day. So... Um, by avoiding traditional augmentation, that's that's helping put downward pressure on future network tariffs. And of course, the batteries are charged by residential solar, and that energy um, can be discharged later in the day um, when it's needed. And so what it does is provide customers with and without solar opportunity to access that local renewable energy. And it also allows the, you know, the retailer to offer a product to customers who want to take advantage of it. So you've seen, you know, Simply has announced they're going to, they've got their virtual power plant product. So that's the way the, the customers are involved. And uh, yeah, so it provides benefits for the customers with solar locally without those, without a battery or those who don't want to get a battery. And by avoiding the augmentation that we would have had to have done anyway, it provides benefits to the full customer base as well. Hmm. So are these 40 batteries going into one sort of particular area? I mean, I was wondering, sort of, you know, do you need one battery per street or what, 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 is, is there a rough formula for what, um, for what you need to, for this purpose? Yeah, so it's driven by the loading on the network and we're putting them in across nine local council areas in, in and around uh, Melbourne and the Mornington Peninsula. So um, it's not determined geographically, but by the, by the, loc- the need on the network. Yeah. And you talked about the sort of the need to address peak demand. So what's the problem here is actually sort of having enough power locally there to sort of meet meet the time of day in the early evening, I guess, where it is now when everyone starts switching on their air conditioners yeah. and the sun goes down? Or is it sort of um, at the same time dealing with you know, huge ex- amounts of excess solar that might be happening at the middle of well, the day? Well, this pro- yeah, this program... Uh, does both. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, Giles. Uh, yeah, this, this program is targeting the network peak demand. Um, but it also does, um, by default, provide the power quality improvements and the solar soaking locally. Um, however, mm. we do see a role for batteries as well um, to address not just the um, peak demand, but the minimum demand challenge as well. So, you know, increasingly we expect to see batteries and, you know, we've got some projects we'll probably talk about in relation um, community battery projects that are targeting both those um, dimensions. Yeah. Well, let's get on to some of those. And just, just very quickly, just my last question about these polls. Giles, sorry, if you don't mind, just uh, there's just a couple more things about this that I really care about. Uh, uh, the first one is, I guess, that the batteries have been manufactured locally, uh, is, Greg, I think. And uh, it's not That's so right. much the, the, the cells that I'm interested in, it's the actual features of the battery. I mean, will it have the same sort of like inverters and stuff like that, that... Um, that I don't know the likes of Tesla Powerwalls have, or and particularly because the batteries are small, it doesn't seem to me they'd have much cost advantage. And I'm wondering if having them made locally actually makes them more competitive with bigger batteries. Yeah, so you've touched on a few things there, David. And um, so one of the you know one of the key costs, particularly for a trial, is building the control system. And you know whether it's a network or a, an aggregator or a third party that needs to connect to another system. So in this case, it connects to our system so we need to be able to communicate with the batteries so we're having to design and build that um, we're looking into how that works um, and the protocols around talking to batteries and what that will do is inform 
um, you know, our platforms and our systems so that in future, when you come to connect, say, uh, the next battery, um, the unit cost of that project will be much lower. So, yeah, what we're seeing for these trials is that the upfront investment in the control system is a significant cost. And then over time, you know, we expect that to fall because you've got the infrastructure there to control you know, to control the batteries. And that, that applies to anyone who's looking to deploy a fleet of batteries. Yep, that's the software. And then there's the inverter. Uh, one of the big things that Giles have been, I have been banging on about one of my main themes this year is is uh, is grid-forming inverters. Uh, there's no suggestion that these batteries would enable the whole street to be, uh, you know, island or anything like that. At the, you know, how's your thinking on that? No, not 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 this trial, not these batteries. But I mean, I guess you know, you raise a, a topic that we're all looking at. Um, and you know, eventually we're going to see more trials of grid forming inverter batteries. Um, but I guess you can see this is a step in that direction, uh, certainly. Back to you, Giles. Yeah, well, look, um, let's talk about some of the other community um, projects that um, you're, you're you're rolling out. And I guess we can also sort of start to sort of, um, well, actually, let's find out, because I'm interested in teasing out about the sort of, you know, the, one of the big debates that's happening at the moment is um, uh, the sort of uh, uh, ring fencing mm -hmm. um, issues. Um, and the big question is, well, who should actually get to own these assets? I mean, some of the generators will probably argue, not simply energy, I, I actually sort of hasten to add, but, but some of the generators would sort of say, well, those those batteries that you stick on power poles shouldn't be owned by you. They should be owned by, by the generators. Um, whereas others sort of say, well, it kind of makes sense because they, they're doing a couple of different things. One, they're storing, they're generating, and they're delivering a key grid service. They're sort of offsetting the cost of new new um, electric, um, new network infrastructure, but um, I've kind of jumped ahead of myself. <laughs> Why don't you explain some of your other community battery programs and then let's get into the, uh, the ring sure. fencing. No, happy to. Yeah, so we've also recently been awarded funding here in Victoria uh, under what's called the Neighbourhood Battery Initiative. And the Victorian government is supporting community groups to do feasibility studies and also to actually build um, three battery projects. So we were successful in... Um, attract uh, winning funding for a battery in Tarnit, which is a suburb in the western suburbs of Melbourne with very high growth rates, very high levels of solar, um, you know, with the new homes. And so we'll be uh, deploying and building a community battery out there. And we're also part um, working closely with a community energy group called Yarra Energy Foundation um, in supporting their project, but they're, they're the lead. And so the community batteries are similar to the Poltop concept However, they, they have a, a slightly extra dimension. So in terms of the choosing the sites for those batteries, we, we looked, the ideal place was where there was available land um, because they're ground mounted. And you've seen, you know, examples of this in Perth and Sydney and, and no doubt elsewhere they'll emerge. Um, but looking for the ideal site where they can um, help manage the voltage problem when there's really high levels of solar concentration. So Tarnit is the suburb with the highest um, uptake of the Victorian government solar homes program. So um, and it, over 40% of the houses there have solar. And also, ideally, they can help um, manage the load at other times of the day. And the way, the way we're structuring that project is that we're going a step further where we'll be providing innovative network tariffs to support the concept of um, basic storage as a service. So we'll publish tariffs that retailers can take advantage of and offer those to customers. And because we've got a smart meter fleet, um, 
in behind the scenes we'll, we'll be able to do the settlement so that um you know people will be able to take advantage of that locally um produced and stored renewable energy so That's yeah my favorite, favorite it sounds incredibly favorite thing uh so just uh, uh so you'll have a, a, a the ANU's been talking about a local use of uh service tariff uh uh, because one of the problems with uh, batteries is that you have to pay to uh, uh, charge the battery, mm. and then the customer has to pay for the, you know, even if it's only going 100 metres up the street, the full distribution cost. Uh, so the tariffs are sort of designed to think about that, are they? Absolutely. And uh, the way we're approaching it is that we, we're getting, oh, sorry, what we saw with community batteries when the governor announced that program, really strong interest from basically the grassroots, local councils and community energy groups. So we've seen a really strong desire to take part in that program. And as a distributor, we're being also encouraged to trial different tariffs. And so for these community batteries, we're able to effectively offer a trial or innovative tariff that will effectively um, give shape to that local use of system arrangement to basically enable that, that content that I spoke about where customers with and without solar can have a basically a more direct relationship with the battery through through their through a retailer offering the product to them and 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 the ANU was also talking about a two-way version of that so that the tariff would actually be designed to discourage export of the solar beyond the local uh, area to me this whole community thing and the fact that you're telling me that councils and stuff uh, are so on board with it. This doesn't surprise me. I feel there's this massive movement towards mm. community-based stuff uh, in general, and there's so much opportunity for electricity networks uh, to, to be in orchestration. But as Giles is going to uh, talk about, you know, it's so difficult with the way the regulations are set up. Yeah, and so, you know, to go back to ANU, I mean, they've sort of been really doing some great work in sort of, you know, setting the agenda in this space. And... I referred to the project that we're working with Yarra Energy Foundation. So they'll own that battery. It'll connect to our system, but we're working and we're a partner to that project. And as is ANU, and we signed a memorandum of understanding with Yarra Energy Foundation and ANU to, to explore this. So, you know, it's an example of where distributors are really trying to you know, demonstrate and showcase this. And yeah, here in Victoria, certainly we're seeing it as both a government and a customer priority and a community priority. So yeah, we're really happy to sort of take part and um, help see it develop. Well, let's go back into the issue with the ring fencing guidelines. I mean, as, as I sort of mentioned beforehand, basically a lot, a lot but not all of the generators sort of argue that um, the network shouldn't be owning um, battery storage. Um, you guys say that you should be, um, as long as it's kind of controlled under this ring fencing guideline, which is basically you have a separate subsidiary which is allowed to sort of compete into the market. Um, just give, just tell us what's at stake here, because it just seems like a very awkward situation, um, driven, I suppose, by the fact that um, we now have a technology which does both things. It's yeah. both network support and um, and it's a generator and, and, and a storer at the same yeah, time. No, uh, yeah, so we, we sort of touched on this earlier. So when I spoke up the Poltop battery program, you know, I, I mentioned that we were avoiding uh, traditional network um, augmentation. So the, the model that we're putting forward is that one that, you know, that, that small amount of investment that we would have made otherwise would go onto our RAB. And by able, being, being able to share the battery with other parties, in particular retailers or aggregators, um, then that, that, that will 
enable and deliver storage solutions ultimately for customers in the system, you know, more mm. cheaply. And, you know, the, the analogy we've sort of kicked around um, and, and thought about it, um, and so I'm in Victoria, you know, I love my cricket and AFL, um, but it's like the MCG saying, look, you've got a perfectly good stadium there, can only play cricket and, and not football. So we're saying, look, it doesn't make any sense. We've got this asset there that can be used by multiple parties. Uh, it can support um, a rollout of storage to support the grid. Um, it can be done in a fair way, and we're only looking to allocate what we would have spent on the network anyway. So we're not uh, we're not doing anything that we wouldn't be doing otherwise. And I guess fundamentally, we're saying we just want to be allowed to 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 play in that space and not be prevented. That that's sort of how I'd summarise it. And Greg, if I look at California, they've got this uh, concept of community-owned uh, electricity businesses that might be a generator, a retailer, and a network. You know, it's a very geography-centric approach, uh, which really, when you think about the total costs of electricity and in Australia, we're going to have not so much in Victoria, maybe, but across the country, there's lots and lots of behind-the-meter stuff. Mm. I mean, I, I wonder whether this traditional division between... I mean, generators own retailers anyway. That part of the model's sort of gone out of history. Uh, it's only this division between regulated and unregulated. And, and you know, the, uh, I guess I could ask the question a lot of ways, but do you think, firstly, that the whole model could be revisited? And, do you, and secondly, that sort of the regulation of lowest cost sort of thing is really the way to make networks, way for networks in the future? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, in my career, I've seen, you know, the, the, the rapid shift, you know, from a large power station supplying energy through networks and a retailer all the way down to a customer. And we've all seen it, and it's, it's amazing how quickly it's changed. But now it's sort of as though the system is organising itself around the customer, which, which is a good thing. And so I guess, you know, as a network, we're required to procure least-cost network services. And, you know, if they come from demand management or batteries, whether they're our own or a third party, that's a good thing, right? Because ultimately we, we pick the least cost um, solution. And as you touched on as well earlier, Giles, that batteries are opening up new opportunities to do new things that we couldn't do before. So it makes sense. It's a, sort of a win-win. And, you know, there are economies of scale for utilities and distributors who manage assets for long periods of time, and that's our core competency. So... Um, and, you know, if you look at the origin of some of the network businesses in Victoria, but probably elsewhere in Australia, they sort of generated from the municipal level. So sort of um, going back to what we've had before. But I think it's a good thing because it's creating new opportunities for customers. And, uh, yeah, we th we're, we're positive about all of that. Just how prevalent might batteries be then in, in, in the future grid? I mean, it sounds like they're going to be, um, you know, just a bit, going to be at a household level. They're going to be on wheels because mm. they're going to be, you know, have EVs and we'll be tr trying to find ways to sort of, you know, successfully um, have bi-directional charging. We're going to have community-scale batteries. We're going to have batteries located next to wind and solar farms. We're going to have batteries next to substations. In fact, there seems to be a bit of a land grab at the moment to every substation around the country. Someone's trying to sort of say, I've got a battery idea here. Um and as you say, they're going to be, um, you know, replacing or substituting for network augmentations. I'm actually just wondering, um, and this is like almost the second question now, um, I'm wondering, because the cost of transmission is rising so significantly, I'm just wondering to what extent can actually bigger batteries put at key parts of the grid could actually sort of obviate the need for some of those 
bigger network upgrades and new extensions that have been contemplated? Yeah, well, I think that's definitely a possibility, and there's you know we're seeing discussion about that in the media of various proposals. But the thing I'd also say is that with these smaller, you know, distribution low voltage batteries, they are able to target benefit streams that the larger batteries can't. So, in, in particular, the local network um, augmentation deferral, voltage management, and you know, if aggregated to a large enough fleet, they can also provide benefits back up into the system. So there's a real advantage in having these smaller batteries connected closer to load. And if you look at, you know, various forecasts from AEMO and the ISP, you know, I think they were projecting, you know, 6 to 19 odd gigawatts of solar, I mean, storage was needed. Um, and we're now seeing, you know, AEMO um, working uh, with distributors to understand, you know, the interface between transmission and distribution. So it kind of reflects the, the, the last question about how everything's changing. So... We think it's just a positive. I mean, if the grid needs storage, um, it doesn't make any sense not to have it close to load and block it from accessing these other services. And can I just talk mm. about costs again, uh, you know, in general? So we know what a Tesla Powerwall costs, uh, and we also know what a very large battery costs, sort of. But these mid-scale batteries, if I look at Osgrid's proposal, it was actually costing more per kilowatt hour and a Tesla uh, Powerwall, and you would, you know, I thought that by having one battery, you'd only have one installation, and you know, rather than thirty installations. But uh, someone else was putting it to me, Tristan Edis, that you know, the wage rates for <laughs> that the that that you have in your business actually means that's not much of a saving uh, after all. Yeah, so I mean, I, I heard that podcast. Um, so you know, we expect battery prices to fall. So even when we've gone through this process. Um, Certainly with the community batteries, we, you know, we saw different price points coming through. So, uh, you know, we expect the the battery prices to fall. And I think the other thing, when you look at the total cost of, you know, providing an equivalent service, um, you know, having a concentrated storage is, is an advantage. Um, there will be scale efficiencies um, eventually, and there will be scale efficiencies in deploying, you know, a, a lumpier bit of storage. Um, and that may be attractive to councils and communities as well. I mean, ultimately, it's up to customers if they want to buy their own battery. But where, you know, for example, there are new developments where it makes sense to put in a community battery or there's, you know, community support for that. I think, yeah, that's that's why we're sort of leaning into these programs because we're, we're sort of, I guess, really being encouraged from the grassroots to go down this path. Hmm. So you've got sort of a whole bunch of different um um, obviously, sort of community battery. Can I just ask about Power PowerCore and just recently came up with a proposal for I think it was actually two gigawatts over twenty different locations. Not so much community batteries, but it was actually like larger scale batteries distributed around the network, which they argued could support a significant rollout of renewables in a part of the grid which is struggling at the moment. Um, where's that proposal got to? Yeah, so you're right. So we put out some material about that and we're responding to the Victorian government where they've um, got an agency called VicGrid and they're looking at um, options to support their renewable energy zones and ultimately to provide system strength. And essentially what we said is that, look, to your point, I think it was referred to again earlier, that you know you need land to, to support batteries and storage. We, we have some zone substations that have um, available land and we could connect batteries and that those batteries could effectively provide a distributed um, service in the same way or as an alternative to, say, um, a synchronous condenser. 
And what we're seeing from vendors is, um, you know, the technology is moving in that direction. And uh, yeah, we think again that distributors can can play a role. And and I guess where it, where it fundamentally comes from is that there's a there's a there are queues, I guess, of generators um, who want to connect um, or people wanting to connect. And uh, you know, Victorian government's trying to enable that. Um, and you know, we put forward that proposal as as an alternative to just having mega transmission projects alone. And one of the advantages, as I said, was there is land available. Um, and in many cases, there's really strong um, community support for going in this direction. Mm. And so, yeah, like it just it just shows that we're, 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 we're seeing like small batteries, batteries on wheels, the medium scale batteries, the bigger batteries and, and the mega ones on the transmission scale. So all through the supply chain, they're, they're emerging. Yeah. And, and how, are you, how are you guys actually looking at vehicle to grid with um, the, those batteries on wheels? Have you, thought, have you guys thought much about that? Certainly are. Um, we're part of a trial that's being led by Gemini and we're installing some fast charging stations for customers in our United Energy Network and that's with a, a number of other distributors. Um, so we'll get some really good data about that and then we're starting to do our own forecasting about you know how we see the future, the next 20 years and we know that electrification is going to be a really big theme. And in, again, here in Victoria, there's been some um, policy announcements where there's an aspirational target of 50% of new car sales are EVs. So we know that there's going to be more EVs and we really want to do the planning work now so that um, we can support them to be rolled out, I guess, affordably and sustainably. I, I, well, I think, uh, Greg, I don't know, Giles, I could talk about this topic for another two or three hours, but we've, we've taken up a good bit of uh, uh, Greg's time and probably our, our, our audiences as well. Greg, it's been a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I love talking to network people who actually have a vision for networks over and beyond just, uh, you know, how can we diddle a regulator out of another few dollars? Uh, I hope, hope it all goes very well for you. Oh, thanks, David and Giles. Great to be with you. And uh, yeah, like we're really happy to be supporting the energy transition. And yeah, we think distributors have a big role to play. So thanks once again. Uh, the nicest thing I can say is uh, I hope Hawthorne has a better year next year. Oh, so do I, but um, I'm sure we will. Thanks. <laughs> Over Richmond's dead body. Okay. Thank you very much for that, Greg. And that was uh, Greg Hannon um, from uh, City Power, PowerCore and United Energy. Uh, David, it does seem a bit of a conundrum. We're going through this quite sort of rapid technology transition. I mean, we sort of touched on the um, the concept of battery storage, um, doing the work of synchronous condensers. So we're talking about sort of virtual syn synchronous machines or grid inverters that we talked about before. But, geez, we seem, to, we, we seem to be going through this sort of massive technology change and we're still not too sure what the rules of the market are, as we've discussed previously, and also who should actually get to own these things. <laughs> Uh, that's right, Giles. Uh, we, we really only touched on that in this podcast, but it's a, an ongoing area of research and thought and discussion. And as usual, everyone has their uh, wants to talk their own book. Um, uh, we focus so much uh, in this podcast, as I think most people do, on the role of generators particularly and retail to a lesser extent. And uh, poor old networks, which in total are worth about a hundred and $20 billion at market value, whether well, it's the wires and poles last mile and uh, probably the most valuable part of the whole system when you really think about it. I mean, if we added up AGL, uh, Energy Australia and Origin, they'd probably be lucky to be worth $20 billion between them. Uh, and here we've got $120 billion worth of wires and poles that we never talk about, an absolutely vital cog in the system. But you would know, Giles, and I'm talking too much, that um, uh, 
uh, uh, I think that this geography uh, location-based approach that, that, that uh, networks really should, should be the orchestration manager. They're the natural uh, uh, way unit to organise electricity with so much behind the metre stuff. You know, we should start with the street and build or the house and build up to the street and then up to the suburb. And we should follow the, uh, the, the wires and poles network backwards and organise the markets and the whole system of, uh, starting at the end of the network, that is out at the point of consumption and working back up to the centre instead of the way we reverse direction we have it at the moment. Well, it seems entirely logical, David. Um, unfortunately, the generators and the retailers are going, what the hell is in it for us? Because they're seeing their large um, centralised generation assets becoming less and less value, particular valuables, particularly the fossil fuel ones and the so-called baseload ones. And they're trying to sort of work out how they can establish their future and structure their business models around this sort of distributed energy future, which has got, as you say, everything to do with um, how it sort of links in with the network at the local level. So if networks get to play in that space, um, which would make sense for them to do so, um, that's why the generators and the retailers are probably screaming about what do they get to what do they get to play with. Well, well, Giles, it's that. But I mean, if we look at what actually is happening down at the network level, and you've got to give a big tick to the ANU people here, Jean Sternberg, who we had on this podcast, and I think we should get back again at some stage. He's working on the. Uh, 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 vehicle to the grid uh, program that we touched on last week just at the beginning but this idea of the uh, location-based tariff uh, so that you know batteries at the moment suffer from this big problem as we mentioned that if when you're charging them you have to pay a distribution tariff and then when you're sending the electricity out the customer has to pay again even if it's only traveling a little way but you're only using a tiny fraction of the network assets, you know, maybe a kilometre or so or two kilometres of the, of the wires and poles. So why should you have to pay for your share of the whole entire network cost uh, and not just pay a tiny bit of tariff for using things locally? And that way the solar guys would be less incentivised to send it back and, and compete with utility solar. Uh, and the whole system could be, you know, the solar energy would be used where it's essentially most valuable right out at the, where, where it's been produced. Mm, interesting. Touching on battery storage, um, we have um, well, the first big battery in Queensland um, at Wando and South that's been built by Vena Energy, um, who own the Tatum Bend solar farm in South Australia and are looking to build a big solar farm next to this big battery, which is about 400 kilometres northwest of Brisbane, sort of vaguely in the same area as the Cooper's Gap Wind Farm, which is owned by AGL, which is um, just who just so happened to be the, um, they actually have the contract to operate the battery. So Vina is building it and AGL will operate it um, much as they do with the Dalrymple battery in South Australia. So that's interesting because it's the first big battery in Queensland, um, probably the first of many one would suspect. They did sort of announce a battery blitz after the big explosion at the Calide generator in May. And we should see um, the first one come up pretty soon too in New South Wales with the Wargrove battery, which is being built by Transgrid. Um, in Western Sydney and also one of many um, on there. So um, the big batteries, um, interestingly enough, I think um, um, the one down battery will probably be the first new battery that's been built um, for a couple of years, actually, despite the fact we talk about it so much. Um, um, yes. Any, any, any observations, yeah. David? Yeah, yeah, Giles. So, I mean, uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, to get a chance to present to a smart energy uh, battery, uh, uh, large battery uh, sort of seminar, uh, uh, along with Tristan Edis, who did a great job talking about all the batteries that have been put in with solar farms. 
And uh, one of the things that came out of that was Queensland. You mentioned this, the first big battery. So we, we didn't have any to study. So I looked at the uh, Wyvernhoe pumped uh, storage and that made an absolute mozza, of course, when Callaid uh, went out. Well, when I say mozza, $53 million of revenue for the year. But that's probably about $40 million of revenue, uh, pool revenue that they didn't think they were going to get uh, at the start of the year. And, you know, a battery uh, that, that would have been able to take advantage of all that incredible volatility, five-minute volatility where prices were up at uh, uh, whatever they call the value of lost load, the administrative limit these days, and then down at a negative level five minutes later, batteries could, could have really killed it on that. Well, equally, we see now that the research coming out of the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, possibly the best independent forecaster of uh, battery, wind and solar costs there is out there and pumped hydro, is showing that you know they expect by 2025 a battery will be cheaper in the United States, uh, lithium-ion battery, that then pumped hydro even up to 10 hours of storage. Now, when you look at the New South Wales government, which wants to get two gigawatts of, uh, you know, more or less eight-hour storage in there, uh, everyone thinks that that's pumped hydro only, pretty much, but uh, or compressed air, or another possibility. But actually, in theory, uh, batteries could 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 still be competitive, in my opinion. Mm. Well, um, interesting stuff. Um, anything else coming out um, in um, in the past week? I think it's been a bit quiet, actually. An awful lot of noise about the power of lobby groups and the need to um, keep coal in the ground um, and some of the climate policies, but that doesn't seem to be getting us any, anywhere very far with the federal government at the moment. Um, although I should point out that ARENA actually came out with its new investment plan for the next uh, for the next three years, and we will see for the first time carbon capture and storage. That's one of its new sort of mandated investments, thanks to the Federal Energy Minister, Angus Taylor, and all the people lobbying him to do so. Although uh, um, Arena would only say that it's trying to get up to speed with where carbon capture and storage is at, but um, my understanding is it's not at very much at all. No, and in fact, there was a major report out from China. I mean, all the um, from now on, uh, and increasingly, Giles, I think. Uh, uh, our, our dear listeners are going to hear an awful lot about COP26 in Glasgow and all the announcements before and afterwards and who said what and did what. Uh, um, uh, a lot of talk there'll be. I'm not sure how much action, but uh, certainly China's been doing some work and they just did a big study on their decarbonisation. Well, there's a very big study released on their decarbonisation, a commission study, I think, in China uh, that ended up concluding that carbon capture and storage just wasn't going to work and was going to be completely uneconomic. I mean, when I read that, it was such a surprise. I had to have a Valium and a good lie down. Uh, what do you think, Charles? <laughs> well, I just wonder if we've got enough Valium to share with the Energy Minister and the uh, Resources Minister because they clearly unaware of this, or maybe they are only too um, aware, but uh, we shall see. David, look, I think that's going to be a bit of a wrap for today. Um, very much a network theme um, this week in, in battery storage, which is good, and we'll probably continue that on for the next couple of weeks. Um, but look, um, thanks once again to Greg Hannon for joining us from United Energy. Um, thanks to everybody out there listening to us and appreciate your feedback. And thanks, of course, to our sponsors, um, Pylon and Evergen. And um, we'll be back again this time next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen. 
the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.